Hello, everyone. Welcome to the binary episode of the Day Zero podcast. I'm Spectre. With me is Z. Today, uh, we have a post on a FreeBSD stack overflow in the Ping uh, SBIN, a Huawei uh, hypervisor vulnerability, as well as some ch discussion around ChatGPT. Um, before that, though, just want to give you all a heads up that next week will be our last week of the uh, podcast for the year until we return on January 9th and 10th um, for because we'll be going on our winter break. So yeah, as always, first, Z will cover the Spot the Vuln solution for the week, which kind of ties into our uh, GPT topic because it was generated using that. But yeah, go ahead, Z. Yeah, this week's uh, Spot the Vuln was indeed generated by uh, ChatGPT. It is an idea for a Spot the Vuln that I've had for a while. Um, some people have called out the fact that it's using uh, algorithms HS256, which is your HMAC algorithm instead of using RS-256, using that with a uh, um, private key or PEM file. Um, so bit odd there, may cause some issues. Nonetheless, the core issue, and this is something I have seen in the wild, is an LFI here. Um, using the key ID to decide what key file to open and actually being able to have it open an arbitrary file. Or, I mean, a unintended file in this case you would still need to keep that uh pam ending um so that is going to limit the files that you could get it to open simply could point it towards like pre-installed certificates at like uh known location uh file upload could maybe be used there are different ways you might be able to exploit that but the issue itself of using the key id that way is definitely something i've seen before so i kind of wanted to make a challenge around that this case, I decided just to ask uh, ChatGPT to give me the code to do that. Um, and I mean, it understood well enough. <laughs> yeah, and uh, as I spoiled in chat a little bit, I was also curious if ChatGPT could solve this challenge, and it could. Um, so those of you who can see the screen can see I asked us the following code containing the vulnerabilities, and it says this code contains potential vulnerability, and it mentions the... Uh, uh, the the directory traversal through the the kid header field. So, yeah, um, I've actually tried this with a few of our past botavons, and it is actually able to solve uh, a few of the ones that I've tried. Um, sometimes it does get false positives as well, but it generally can identify the issue, um, unless it's something really complicated where there's a lot of context needed. But yeah, the spot yeah, the vaults been fun to play with. Are generally small enough that I'm not too surprised that. AI would be able to just pinpoint here's kind of the bad code pattern because a lot of them are really all, like obvious code patterns or some that could be pattern match. Um, IAPR asked in chat, uh, first thing cough was the LFI2. Can you inject a null byte to make pi ignore the file ending? No. Uh, you can't do null bytes. Uh, you also can't do the truncation trick. Um, if you go over the path max length, uh, Python will basically just air out because you're too long, so you can't do that one either. Um, that's mostly seen like uh, PHP used to be vulnerable on both of those fronts. I don't think PHP 7 or 8 are still vulnerable on that front. Um, maybe Perl. I'm not too sure where else you'd really see that outside of um, like C. All right. So uh, we'll segue into talking about uh, ChatGPT a little bit because it has been all the rage this week. Um, a lot of people you know, in the InfoSec industry, have been playing with it for doing various things. Um, 
in, in like the circles that I'm in, we've been playing with it to see like how well it can do Vuln research, trying it against the spot the Vulns, but also trying it against um, other things and trying to see if we can make it generate vulnerable code as well as secure code. Um, so have you found any PS5 Vulns with it yet? <laughs> no, we haven't. Uh, you know, that's that's still to come. Um, I, I did actually try some fun things. Uh, like, I wanted to see if I could get it to give me, uh, like, non-public information. So, like, say with Windows, right? If you have, like, a Windows API that's undocumented, I wanted to see if you could get it to, like, give you some information on that, but it, it won't. It'll say, like, you know, I, I don't know anything about, like, these companies and whatever. But um, Yeah, so it is trained only on, like, public internet, you know, Wikipedia. They do have a list of some source that they trained it including like public internet so somebody did some uh reverse engineering on it and did like a blog post about it, it might be able to find it that way but that's it primarily what i was looking for internal knowledge that that's kind of what i was looking for either people who reverse engineered things or leaks uh, i didn't know if they had some kind of filtering on like leaks and stuff like that um because obviously you know even non-public information does get out on the internet uh, a fair bit um especially when it comes to things like windows and those monolithic projects but yeah um i was just curious on that one i didn't really expect it to work and i couldn't get it to work maybe there is some way um <clears throat> primarily what i was interested in though was to see if it could do uh secure code gen now i know that uh gpt3 is used for like um proper code gen tools but i decided to try it through uh chat gpt and uh, I kind of I put out this tweet, and I'll actually bring it up just to show everyone who's here what I'm talking about. Um, but yeah, so at first I tried to tell it how to generate secure code. So I was like, um, write two functions in C that run in their own threads that increment a global counter with synchronization, and it would do it. Uh, it would do it properly. Um, but then I was like, okay, what if I just tell it to write something that uses two threads to insert and remove items from a ring buffer? And it would still use synchronization. And it's like, okay, this this bot can write code that like most people struggle with, uh, with writing concurrent code and, and, and doing the synchronization there. Um, I think somebody in Discord even got it to write a lockless ring buffer implementation that was secure in x86, but insecure in ARM because of the memory model differences. I think we had a topic about that at one point, actually. Um, but yeah, like there's a lot of like really neat things you can get it to do. Um, and it seems like it could actually be pretty useful for doing small bits of code gen, um, for doing like, you know, a, a relatively simple or common functionality, um, and doing it in like a secure way. It could potentially be useful for that. Um, it, it it's more impressive than I was expecting it to be because a lot of the AI stuff we've looked at in the past was like, yeah, it's kind of neat, but it's like very limited. Uh, it only works in this one specific area, but with a lot of the things I tried with GPT chat, it, it worked pretty well. Um, now there was one particular example that I'll bring up. Um, I actually tweeted this yesterday, uh, of another spot, like previous spot, the bone challenge we had, uh, that I threw at it. Uh, and it was the, the YAML chat user one. Um, so this spot, the bone was the one where, uh, the YAML load was the, the primary issue. The fact that untrusted data was making it to YAML load, um, and that could be used to get code execution. Um, the uh, ChatGPT bot caught that one, but it also caught a false positive. Uh, it basically thought that the username was uh, could lead to directory traversal um, for saving the file name, though I use os.path.base name um, in the Python code, so that's 
not really correct. It, it thinks there's an issue there where there isn't. So this is kind of a, I feel like this is kind of a good screenshot. So showing like some of the strengths and some of the weaknesses at the same time in ChatGPT, at least when it comes to VR. Um, because yeah, it found the real issue and it, it was like the first issue, but then it can also find bad issues. And this is something you were talking about a bit, C. Yes, um, one of it, the it's issues. It's very confident, and it it can come off that it's finding things that it thinks is right, and it might not be, and it could end Com up tricking you if you don't know the difference. Confidently incorrect. Um, yeah, is kind of the way I put it. Um, and I was more looking at using ChatGPT at a bit more if I guess a meta or a research level. I didn't test it really with any specific code, like oh, what's a problem here? Like the spot the volumes. I I did obviously have it do some code gen. There is the Codex AI, or like that's used by Copilot, GitHub's Copilot. Um, that's also a GPT three thing, um, and that does code generation built into your uh, IDE. You know, write a comment of what you want to do, and it generates code for that. That works pretty well, closely equivalent. ChatGPT is, I think they're calling it a GPT three point five. So. Ethnically a little bit better, but I don't know enough about how or why it's better than GPT-3, which is what Codex is based on. Um, either way, on using ChatGPT, one of the things that kind of excites me is just the knowledge synthesis that it's able to do. Um, so I don't do much browser exploitation, but we occasionally talk about it on the show. So I started asking ChatGPT, like, hey, can you tell me about Chrome's TurboFan? Um, I figured that's something we've talked about a little bit, so like I have some familiarity, but I wanted it to start telling me about things, and it mentions, you know, gives me an overview of some optimizations, and I asked, like, hey, tell me about this optimization, and that's where, like, it would write the correct information about what it was, but it would also provide, like, the sample code is like, oh, it would optimize, like, this loop in this way, but it was completely wrong, um, I can't remember the exact optimization I was looking at for that. Um, I mentioned it in Discord if you check chat history for that, if you actually care. But it, it was effectively just incorrect, but telling me it's right. Uh, similarly, I'd asked it about things like a ROP and COP. Um, and, you know, tell me the difference between those. And one of the funny statements it made was that COP doesn't use the call instruction. Uh, which call-oriented programming it's kind of all about using the call instruction um so yeah i had a lot of cases where it's just confident in its answer it gives you some that sounds legitimate has the right terms seems to know what's talking about but isn't and that's what concerns me about it i think it's really cool but at the same time when it can give those answers that you need to already have a baseline understanding Otherwise, you just don't know if it's actually legit information or not. Um, it kind of limits its use case. This is still a beta, so maybe we won't see that as much. Um, but at the same time, like I can see this being used in like a way similar to how you might use Google now, where it's like you go Google, you go Wikipedia, you get a few websites kind of get a bunch of knowledge and using this more as like ask a question, get a synthesis of those responses, which may or may not be correct. Um, on the internet, you get information that isn't right. So it's going to be trained with some information that might not be correct, but it gets that information back to you in a nicer format. Um, 
Turn Exploit asks, uh, how much of it is just parroting, though? I mean, it is all just parroting. It is just text. It is just a text model trained on uh, effectively the internet. So Stack Overflow and all of that. So if you ask it questions that you would get off of Stack Overflow, it's able to kind of answer that. Um, it's, yeah, IABR puts it super advanced parroting. Um, but it is essentially just parroting, uh, and that comes with all the downsides of it. But I, I do think there's definitely some room for, like, that knowledge synthesis of just having this one resource where you could ask questions, and importantly, ask follow-up questions, like I was talking about with TurboFan. I was able to ask questions like, okay, I don't know what the heck this optimization is, you know, explain it to me. Being able to do that and not need to go off and do a little bit more research, it could definitely be a time saver. It had some issues. I noticed the code it was using tended to be wrong, but the information it had still was correct. At least in that case, in the Rob Cop case, uh, Rob and Cop, um, the information itself tended to be wrong. So, kind of as, as you get to the edge of knowledge or things that aren't super well documented anywhere, it also has issues, which kind of makes sense. Like, I started asking about things like, uh, Paul preceded Rop or CP Rop, uh, and things like that, which you'd be somewhat hard pressed to find information on that outside of like the paper that it was originally written on. So I don't fault it for not really understanding it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as you kind of hit that edge, you're left just in a position where it gives you answers that seem confident, seem right, but you really need already have some background otherwise you're just going to be misled so i don't know i think it's cool i think it has its use for sure i'm excited to see where it goes but i wouldn't rely on it for too much just yet yeah the main use case that i've seen people interested in um like the people that i talk to is basically using it as like a better google um they were able to ask it some you know like pretty trivial questions like how do I do this and no sequel or something like that. Um, and you know, it would give you the correct information most of the time and it saves you the effort of like going to Google and then going through all of the SEO optimized crap that could end up being there. Um, trying to go through like stack overflow answers and whatever, like it, it's just a, a faster way to be able to get quick information like that. Um, so that is a potential way. Like I could see it being useful, um, and you don't really have the like the problem of it being incorrect sometimes won't be as much of an issue there because if it's just something where you want to like using it as a reference if you just want to look something up and like how do I do something um, generally if you're doing that you're gonna know if you're looking at something that's wrong um, so you don't have to worry as much about that I feel like um, now yeah, if you're trying to learn something that's a little different yeah. Um, if you're trying to get it to tell you like how some novel exploitation technique works or something, it, I don't think it really suits that use case quite as well. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely I mean, some valid use cases already for it, and um, I, I'm I'm seeing it used by like some people that I talk to. So it does do a really good job of explaining technical concepts. Um, like Surprising yeah, CP Rop yeah. was, you know, really at the edge of its knowledge, and it didn't get that. But it did get like Rop and Job. Oh. Um, yeah. And it could be coerced to get COP. I had some issues because it was telling me it was some functional programming paradigm thing. Um, and like 
it gave it some completely different meaning, but eventually I did get it to understand cops. Like, it did a good job even at that level. But yeah, as you push it right up to the edges of the knowledge, then you're kind of running into the issues. But yeah, no, I agree. Like, as kind of a search assistant, I think there's a lot of potential to use it there. I'm curious what the monetization strategy is going to be on this, you know, because like, oh, Dolly, when they release that again, another GPT thing, um, they started off where a few people got access to like do whatever and Dolly Mini where anybody could do whatever. Um, but then now they charge, it's like you get 15 queries for free and then you have to pay. So mm. what's the model going to be with this? Do you get to ask like just a few questions before you need to pay or like how will they monetize it? Will they even monetize yeah, it? I guess is another thing. Um, her next flight asks the model is not public. Is it? No, it is exclusively licensed to Microsoft. Um, and they are the only ones with the model. They release these kind of tools built on top of it. And they have the API through OpenAI um, that gives you like because there has been text completion through GPT three for a while. The image gen obviously um, also have like they have a few other things in there. Code gen, I guess, is the other one. Um, they offer those tools on top of it, but the underlying model is private and will remain private. Yeah. Um, what my main interest in, like, going forward and, you know, hoping where it might be able to be improved for is for um, using it as a tool to help in, like, VR and uh, exploit development. Um, like, one cool thing I got it to do, and, it, well, almost got it to do, it was, like, super close. I asked it to write code that could spray the uh, KMALIC 128 cache on the Linux kernel heap and uh, or, uh, using setx Hatra, and it actually generated, like, valid code to do that. The only thing is, it would only call like Setex Atra once, so it wasn't actually spraying the heap. It would only do it one time. But it was like, man, if the, if it just had like a loop in there or something, or maybe if you tweaked your query a bit to be like, do it so many times, um, like I would yeah, recommend like, like trying that, that could... in um like Copilot, writing a comment telling it to do that because Copilot gives you a bit more control over the code generated. Also, it gives you options for it so like if you don't like how it does something it's you know a little shortcut and you can just like scroll through different options for how it wants to complete it um so for code gen and things like that um i feel like if you're going to use gpt look at copilot to actually do that because copilot is pretty good yeah maybe i'll look at at how copilot functions for doing those kinds of like exploitation steps and stuff um could be could be really interesting um, but like I mentioned, why it's open AI, what's open about it? Uh, well, I mean, it, it like it is open for you to use. I mean, just because the model isn't open doesn't like. Yeah, I, I believe I that's basically the gist of it. What they're doing is they're making the AI open for anybody to use via their API. So you don't get the model, but they're making these easier to use interfaces to it. That way you don't have to run your own model and have to understand all that. It's just see. Um, API interface, something easier, does specific tasks that people are actually interested in. I would assume that's why they're calling it OpenAI. I've never actually looked. You can probably check their website, and there might be a bit more of a reason behind that. 
I mean, I kind of get what you're saying. Like you're saying open AI suggests that it's like fully open, open source, and you can look at the model and study it and whatever. But um, I mean, yeah, that just I, I don't think it's like totally fair to, you know, call out like the fact that the model is closed, like not open to the public. Um, I don't think that really takes away from the coolness factor of it and the usability of it. So. Yeah, but uh, like I said, it's been fun playing around with it. Um, the, there'll be more things I try, and I'll, I'll give Copilot more of a try, too. Um, to be honest, most of the time, I mostly just blow off AI things. Uh, like I said, like almost every time I've looked at them in the past, it's very limited use case, and I just didn't really care about it. Um, but with this, I, I could actually see some useful applications, and I've been quite impressed by it. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I think a lot of the AI... Yeah, a lot of the AI we've covered um, in the past has been very, like, academic AI. Obviously, we've covered it when it comes to fuzzing and stuff. And it's just, like, smaller university teams doing some, like, training and stuff. They don't have the same computational power to create these models and do the training that a company... I'm not sure exactly what Microsoft's relationship is to GBT3, if they actually were part of building it or if they just have a license on it and it's just that i'm not sure what the relationship is there but either way there's a lot of money involved for them with it there a lot more than i think like other ais that we would have looked at and a lot more than a lot of companies can even really put into it for sure all right, so uh, up next, we have a blog post coming out of Google's security blog on memory-safe languages in Android 13. So um, this is a bit of like an annual post that Google makes um, talking about their security. Um, and, you know, they have the, their summary at the top. Uh, in 2022, despite only representing 36% of vulnerabilities in the security bulletin, um, memory safety vulnerabilities accounted for 86% of our critical uh, severity security vulnerabilities um, and 89% of our remotely exploitable vulnerabilities. So they're giving a little bit of uh, stats, um, giving some year over year stats. You can kind of see that memory safety vulns have dropped quite a bit, even since 2019, um, with like like 220 to 230 reported in 2019 and only like 80 or 80 to 90 in 2022. Um, so yeah, they're, they're kind of talking about that drop. Um, and saying that it coincides with shifting shifting to languages that are, you know, safe, uh, safer languages. Um, and they talk about the fact that Android 13 is the first release um, where the majority of new code added was in memory safe languages. Um, so, you know, things like Rust, Java, Kotlin, um, stuff like that. So kind of interesting um, with Google. Google's always been on this push for trying to push more memory safe languages, especially in Android. Um, it's something we've talked a little bit about before. And with uh, Rust support coming into the Linux kernel, which we've also talked about before, um, that's kind of where their blog post starts to go, is looking at what they want to do in the future, um, talking about implementing user space uh, hardware abstraction layers in Rust, uh, as well as using Rust for various uh, kernel drivers. So, yeah, it's just kind of like a summary post talking about what's been going on and what they're planning to do um, trying to move away, like migrate C and C++ code bases to, to Rust where possible um, or other safe languages. And uh, yeah, I mean, I thought it would bring it up because, like I said, whenever Google's at the front of the charge for something, it's it, it generally gets some steam behind it uh, in the security space. 
And uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean seeing been... more safe languages come will change the memory corruption uh, and the security landscape as a whole. They've been uh, pushing Rust and like Linux and Android. Um, I do wonder if they'll be able to maintain this into uh, next year's release. My thought being a big chunk of the new code for this year is Rust. And a big chunk of that is because Rust has like finally landed into the kernel. Um, and they're finally actually shipping it. So it feels like there's several years of backlog of code just making it in now that kind of pushed rust over the edge on this one that next year they might fall back beneath 50 percent again i mean they're not that far over 50 percent they're just a little little sliver on there um in terms of using safe language so i'm not sure they'll be able to maintain this they very well may it just feels like, you know, maybe this year's a little bit special because it is the first year with Rust. So there's just a lot of, like, the boilerplate and anything else coming in with that. Um, but yeah, on the whole, I mean, there's just that continual move towards it. And obviously that has been paying off. They do have significantly fewer vulnerabilities uh, this year. and like Memory corruption ones, at least. Yeah, yeah. memory, sorry, memory corruption issues. And that does mean something, because it's not the case that they're just not spotting them. They're investing more time in being able to spot them in the wild and stuff, too. And having less results, so I think that's a good indication that this is, you know, that their hardening is actually working. And part of that is the language, part of that's just generic attack service reduction, which using safer languages is part of. For sure. Um... Yeah, that's something that I think people don't think about very much is the fact that sandboxing and migrating to memory safe languages kind of go hand in hand um, because you can prioritize things that are, you know, at the less privileged levels of the sandbox, um, move that over to like more memory safe languages. And then even if you still have some memory corruptions, it's more likely they're going to be in the more privileged, privileged layers and attackers are going to have to do more work to exploit them anyway, um, to the point where you know, maybe it's not even super relevant uh, at the point you would be able to get a memory corruption. So that's kind of the goal of what they're going for. Um, you know, they do stipulate, of course, that not everything is going to be able to be migrated. Um, it's not like memory corruption is going to die completely. Um, but, you know, they want to get as close as they can to good uh, or to perfect. You know what I mean? Um, move as much as they can in a reasonable way. Um, and yeah, they're kind of starting off with those howls and the, uh, the Android virtualization framework, as well as some of the drivers, which I can imagine they're probably going to start with the more like, uh, complicated and open drivers in terms of attack surface. So yeah, uh, an interesting post by Google, not a lot of technical details there, but it is a bit of an overview and kind of shows the direction they're headed in. So yeah, and there's some cool graphs and stats which uh, which we like to cover when they come up because they can give you some insights into what the landscape uh, is looking like for for security when it comes to memory corruption and, and where it's moving towards. Um, it seems like uh, XCD80 asked in chat. It seems like Apple is doing the opposite and doing stuff like pointer signatures. Um, yeah, it seems like Apple isn't super gun ho on doing uh, like memory safe languages uh, and angling more to kill exploitation uh as opposed to memory corruption bugs um that's that's kind of been apple's meta for a while now though uh is just trying to make it so that like even if you have a memory corruption you can't do anything useful with it um it's a different approach um 
And like, yeah, there's trade-offs with, with both. What Apple is doing is pretty strong though. Um, and it will be interesting to see like how Android and iOS kind of stack against each other um, in security in a few years after things like uh, Blastor and um, the lockdown mode that Apple's been pushing um, and the memory safe transition that Android has been pushing, trying to see like what the trade-offs end up looking like um, when they're closer to, you know, or more mature, I guess I should say. So, Although on the Android side, there is memory tagging. Um still not really seen but it, over the next few years very well still maybe seen because it has at least landed support for it has landed in Linux. i think yeah. compiled into android now um just kind of lacking on the device enforcement side yeah yeah supports there but um i don't think many devices or really any devices are using it yet yeah, uh, I know the pixel isn't because there was some though. debate around that. Yeah, for sure. Like I'm thinking, you know, yeah, in you five years, to... you're saying uh, for iOS in a few years after they have a couple more things. I think there's there's things that Android's doing too. I'm a lot more kind of in favor of what Google's doing with attack service reduction rather than focusing at the exploits. Oh, um, for the defensive side, yeah. Yeah, my feeling is you know reducing the attack surface is smarter move but at the same time like apple as they've been taking some of the exploit mitigations like they are aiming for very early mitigations like we saw with the k-alloc type uh things that happen very early in the chain to really make exploitation of problem um same deal with the pointer signatures you're going to have to deal with that very early in most exploit chains um so like they have a pretty pretty sizable impact but i kind of argue that attack service reduction is even earlier in the chain you're limiting where they can even appear yeah uh in an ideal world on the defensive side like you would kind of approach it from both sides uh try to reduce the attack surface by moving to more more memory safe languages and then instituting mitigations uh against memory corruption where it is still applicable but you know in reality of, of course your resources aren't unlimited. You kind of have to pick your pick your battles, and Google's picking the battle on the the memory safe languages side of things. Um, yeah, and yeah, like there's... you said, I think that's a fairly smart way of going about it. Obviously, it's not going to kill bugs. There's still like you know the higher level logic type bugs you can have, um, but memory memory corruption at least um, you know could trend downwards quite a bit because of it. Yeah, I think the key thing is like th there's a trade off depending on what you choose. Um... Both are completely valid. Like I'm saying, I tend to agree with Google's approach, but it's not like that means that I think Apple is just, you know, terribly insecure because they're not doing the same thing. Like, no, you can make an argument on both sides. I think it's completely legitimate to go the other way. I just personally lean on one side, but it, both are fine. All right, so uh, we'll get into some of our vulnerabilities for this episode, starting off with a FreeBSD vuln. Um, and this was kind of funny to see put out there because it's in the uh, in the ping SBIN. So, yeah, pretty pretty uh, critical functionality of FreeBSD. <laughs> and uh, Z, I'll let you get ping. into that. Yeah, no, first thing I think of is, you know, like ping of death style. I mean, ping of death was an old do a denial of service attack. Uh, 
but that sort of thing where it's like somebody sends a ping to your machine and you know completely compromises you that is not the case oh what this vulnerability is in the response to a ping so you would have to ping a malicious server um in terms of using it there's maybe a lpe aspect to this just local privilege ask where you would ping some server you control that respond like without getting into the exploitability just yet you would ping the server um and you know let's say it lands an exploit gives you a shell ping runs as root well sorry not as root uh yeah no it is it is a sec you would binary um they do call that out specifically because it needs the uh raw sockets working at a level off of or different from like tcp udp basically the only way that works is through raw sockets uh so that's the like cap net raw or whatever capability that ends up grabbing um i do want to quickly mention that even though like it is uh an spin um and it does have access like the raw sockets um it is running in like a capability mode sandbox so it's yeah, still pretty that's... constrained in how it can interact with the rest of the system so it does like, it's not quite as good as it might sound at first glance. That's just what I was getting at with Cap Neverall. Um, basically, it's got the capability, but that's about all it actually is left with. Um, is raw socket access, and then everything else is dropped. Um, so yeah, it is fairly limited. There's a bit of an LP aspect there, because raw socket is the step up. Not a ton, but like it is something, but that's about all you're really gaining from it, unless you exploit this remotely. But for this to be a remote attack, you have to ping a server. So like, I can imagine the social engineering thing like, hey, my server's down, can you ping it? Just see if you can reach it. And kind of getting it that way, but on a whole, you know, reading Stack Overflow and ping, I thought it was going to be worse than it is. Getting into the actual vulnerability, uh, it is pretty straightforward. I'm just pulling up the uh, patch here, or a mirror of the patch, I guess. Um, and Kernex would ask who uses FreeBSD anyway. Um, who knows? I mean, it runs on a lot of like routers and stuff. Um, I think it's just... somewhat popular for like NAS and stuff too, right? Yeah, like systems um, like that, kind of in that in that realm. Yeah, uh, I definitely kind of see it there. Um, I mean, I guess consoles. Uh, you had what PS PS4 was running FreeBSD, I think. PS5 does too. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. So it's, there it's you go. Like <laughs> really weird, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, th there's some customization there. Either way, jumping back onto the actual issue here. Issue is, um, sorry, when I was looking at this, I used the, uh, uh, the split view. Let me just pull that up. Right here, yeah. Uh, this mem copy is kind of the key issue, or the HLAN plus the mem copy. HLAN, it's looking at the packet, basically getting the length of it, and, um, that can be up to 60 bytes total. It is then just copying it straight into the IP. IP is 
um, right here, just struct IP IP on the stack. So just copying it in there. The thing is, struct IP is basically just a naked IP header. By naked, that means it doesn't include any of the optional uh, headers. So any of the optional flags in there, um, those aren't included in the length. So if you send it a packet or if the ping response actually has any of those optional headers in it, um, or if the packet causing the issue has it, um, uh, ICP, uh, IC ICMP error packs, whatever, they will sometimes quote a packet inside when it's copying it. You can have the same issue there. But effectively, what's happening here is that structure only intends to hold just the header. If you send it a pack that actually has options to it, um, it can overflow by uh, 40 bytes total um, if you send it enough options. That's overflowing on the stack. I don't know for sure, but I do assume that being ping, being a network uh, binary, this is or this should be compiled with um, binaries. But I didn't, uh, I wasn't actually able to confirm that. But that would be my assumption because generally speaking, with anything network, you want to compile it with, with canaries. Current exploits ask Can ChatGPT find this vulnerability? I have no idea. Feel free to ask it. Um, I think it would probably need too much context. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure if it could, but. Yeah, like when it comes to actually noticing this in code. There is that little bit of a challenge where you have to be aware that IP can't hold the maximum size of an IP header. That exactly. it is specifically yeah. the naked, they, they call it out as being a naked header um, in like the IP header file where it's defined. Um, I don't think I could pull that up easily, but it is kind of called out there that that is what it is, but you have to be aware of that, but otherwise it's it is kind of straightforward. It's just you control the length within reason. That is kind of another thing that when you see it's only the uh, 0x0f as the like maximum amount that does the bit shift, you don't have a lot of control. Like It's not a big buffer, so it is something you might just glance over and not double check the sizes on. I could definitely kind of see, see myself doing that thing. It's already a small size. That's probably just accurate or whatever. Uh, just because it's not too big, it doesn't look like much of a buffer to really consider. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it has a little bit of the challenge there, but not a huge challenge. Possible, like, given the right chunk of code, giving it just like the thousand, uh, I think it's even multi-thousand line file here, and just giving that to ChatGPT, it's probably not finding it. Given a much more limited subset of the code, I think there's at least a chance. But yeah, yeah. on a whole, as an issue, doesn't seem like that big of a deal, really. It's, you know, be aware of it's kind of neat to see Stack Overflow and, and like this network stuff. But um, yeah, with that's canaries, what I took away too. Um, it, it's kind of a funny bug, but your exploitability is pretty questionable. Um, it would, it seems like it would be like, it would be a linear overflow. So stack canaries would be a factor. Um, and then when you consider the fact that the ping SBIN is also constrained into a sandbox and you're just getting capnet raw, um, it's probably like not really worth the, the effort and the conditions that it takes to exploit it anyway. Um, 
Yeah, the so, only you know, thing... like there is a potential RCE aspect, but again, in practice, I don't think that's really feasible anyway. So, yeah, I think one thing I will call out though is you do have quite a few things on the stack. I do not know what the sizes are, so assuming you get the uh, stack reordering, um, that puts them in order of size. I don't know how many of these you'd actually be able to overwrite, but. There is some potential that you might be able to explore for structures you may be able to corrupt with this yet. Because I don't think it's just going to be the IP structure and then um, and then the stack canary and like getting into the stack meta. Um, you might have some room for targeting the data that's on the stack between there where you wouldn't end up corrupting. Uh, the stack there. So there's maybe some room for exploitation here, but you would have to look at the actual compilation and see how these stack items get ordered. Yeah. All right, so we'll get into our next topic here, which is a post by Impala Labs on a uh, Huawei security hypervisor vulnerability. And uh, I believe this is the same vulnerability that was talked about in the Hexacon presentation we did a watch party for. Um, which has a good bit of background information on it, so I would recommend checking out that Hexacon talk if you're interested. Um, there's also another post Impala has done on some of the background that they link off to. Uh, but basically, Huawei has a security hypervisor that they use for mobile devices, uh, and it's essentially used to protect the kernel integrity. So it's a good target to go for if you want to open up some possibilities when it comes to kernel attacks. Um, typically, with the hypervisor, the obvious attack surface is hypercalls. Um, but in some instances, like this one, it can also share memory with the kernel, um, and in this case, that's done for logging. Uh, so the hypervisor can log to this buffer, um, which, as the kernel, you can map into your address space and access that buffer. Um, and the vulnerability here is the fact that the buffer would contain a control structure um, that it would use for actually doing those writes. Um, so it would contain like a pointer to the data, um, as well as an offset and two sizes for the the header and one for the uh, one for the header and one for the data. Um, and yeah, the pointer of where the log string gets written to by the hypervisor is completely exposed, basically. There's no validation on it to ensure it doesn't point to hypervisor-exclusive memory. So that can give you an out-of-bounds write into the hypervisor address space. You don't control the contents, but a write of a non-zero byte is sufficient enough in something like a hypervisor to escalate pretty easily. Um, what they exploited in this case was they targeted the stage to page table allocator's uh, heap offset value and caused that to underflow. And there's a bit of context around that uh, and why that's useful, but basically they have a, a check in the allocator to make sure that it doesn't return um, addresses that are not exclusive to the hypervisor. But by causing an integer underflow on that heap offset value, that check will pass um, regardless. And so you can get it to return memory that's outside of its purview, basically. Um, so yeah, they got an alloc to return outside of hypervisor memory into the shared memory. Um, which they were able to use to get another stage two page table entirely under the kernel attacker's control. And when the attacker has control over hypervisor page tables, it's basically game over. They can do whatever they want, um, including remap the backing code pages of the hypervisor itself um, as writable. And they use that to patch the code in the hypervisor. So yeah, it's a pretty cool attack chain. Uh, it's not too often we get to talk about hypervisor stuff, especially um, in like the mobile space. And yeah, this affected the P30 and P40 light devices as well as possibly some other models. So 
yeah, it's a pretty cool blog post. Um, like I said, like there, this vulnerability has been covered before. There is some other information on it. Um, but yeah, I mean, this post has some really useful diagrams that help explain, you know, the state of the heap and, and what they're doing. Um, and I think it's a well-written post and gives some insights into Huawei's hypervisor. So yeah, and definitely wanted to give it a cover. It's definitely a fun issue. And it reminds me of older exploits when it came to kernel exploits where you trick the kernel into writing into you under uh, dealing with user land data. Um, kind of just gives me a similar vibe, I guess, as some of those older exploits. Don't really see it too often anymore, maybe on Windows, because Windows does Windows things um, and has to support all the drivers. Um, but yeah, kind of gave me some vibes of that. Um, yeah, Nice bug. I enjoyed this post, and it was well written, too, I think. Yeah. Um, and that, that's a good point. Like the hypervisor kernel boundary is kind of at the same level of maturity as like kernel and user boundaries were like 10 years ago, I would say. Um, just as like a rough guesstimate, like it, it feels like it's similar with the maturity of the isolation between the two privilege levels. So yeah, um, it's kind of similar to some of those older issues you'd see in kernel. So yeah, um, that's all of the vulnerabilities that we have for this episode. We do have some shoutouts. Um, so you actually hinted at it a bit earlier. We had some shoutouts around uh, Chrome browser exploitation. Um, and yeah, so this was these were two posts by uh, Jack Hacks. Um, the first part talks about uh, introduction to V8 and JavaScript internals, and then the second part goes into TurboFan and, and some of the optimization stuff and JIT compilation that's going on there, so some of the more advanced concepts. Um, yeah, like... We like to talk about browser exploitation when it comes up. It's a very fun area of exploitation, um, but it does require a lot of background knowledge and just knowledge of how the engine works and all the internals. And you kind of have to play like years of catch up to uh, to understand what's going on there. So posts like this are extremely valuable, um, in my opinion, just for getting that background knowledge and getting your feet wet in browser exploitation. Um, Cause you know, obviously to be able to exploit something, you have to understand how it works. Um, so yeah. Um, we like to shout out these kinds of posts when they come up. I haven't read through all of them. It is a pretty dense post um, has a lot of, uh, it goes like pretty deep on all the internals has a lot of like diagrams and stuff showing off things as well. Um, but what I have read seems pretty solid. So if you're interested yeah. in browser exploitation, Worth checking out. Yeah, I basically I had both these come up, um, come across my feeds, and it's like not exploitation, so it's not really something we're going to cover. But I did feel like there's just so much information in these posts, even though I haven't read it either. Again, browser exploitation isn't really an area that I'm super interested in, um, but I figured somebody out there would probably find a lot of use out of this. Um, looks like a lot of good content. For sure. All right. So uh, with that said, that's all the topics that we have for today. So thank you, everyone who tuned in. You can catch the VOD on Twitch immediately or on other platforms like YouTube tomorrow. We also have previous podcasts up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more links on Anchor. Uh, feel free to join our Discord and follow us on Twitter. Links for those are down below or in the chat. And we will see you next week, uh, which once again will be our last week of the podcast before our Christmas break. And we'll see you then.